High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. You must remember a kiss is just a kiss, a triumph of the Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment of our ongoing series, Jean and Jane. I don't know if I'm unhappy because I'm not free, or if I'm not free because I'm unhappy. I say our responsibility as Americans is to be concerned about what our country is doing. The suicide of Jean Seberg, the young actress from Iowa. Are you ready to do the workout? Over the past two episodes, we traced how both Jean Seberg and Jane Fonda lived and worked in Hollywood and in France through the turbulent decade of the 1960s. Perhaps because both actresses spent so much time in Paris, married to prominent French men, neither woman was a conventional American hippie. And they both came rather late to the social upheaval of the decade. But once they jumped in, both Jean and Jane went all in, with little regard for how giving their time and money to controversial causes would have an impact on their stardom. Today, we'll begin by exploring Jean Seberg's relatively brief but extremely intense period as a key contact and donor for black radicals in Los Angeles, including a self-proclaimed cousin of Malcolm X and a leader of the Black Panthers, the radical organization which rose to national prominence in the mid to late 1960s. We'll be talking about the Black Panthers a bit over the course of the next couple of episodes. And if you want to know more about them, there are plenty of resources, including a recent documentary by Stanley Nelson called The Black Panthers, Vanguard of the Revolution. Another documentary that I would absolutely recommend, and one that's maybe the most in tune with the way Jane Fonda and Jean Seberg would have perceived the Panthers, is Black Panthers, a 28-minute film directed by Agnes Varda in 1968. Varda, who was friends with Jane Fonda and Roger Vadim, and had come to California with her husband, filmmaker Jacques Demy, documents the Panthers' presence in Oakland, California, and the nonviolent protests against the imprisonment of Panthers leader Huey Newton. The Panthers explained to Varda on camera their 10-point program, 
which, amongst other things, demanded reasonable access to jobs and housing for Black people and an end to police brutality. The Panthers had begun as a watchdog group, consisting of Black men with legally, openly carried guns, who stood by while cops, mostly white cops, arrested Black people in Black communities. In her film, Varda refers to the panther as, quote, a beautiful Black animal who does not attack, but defends himself ferociously. The Panthers were founded as a revolutionary organization that believed that they needed to be armed in order to protect themselves in a war that they were fighting. A war against the police, which the police had started. As the organization grew, it's true that not every member's actions lived up to these stated ideals. It's also true that the Panthers became a target of a government conspiracy, which was absolutely willing to distort the truth in order to put down this revolution. Anyway, if you want to learn more about the Black Panthers, you should do so. What you need to know in order to understand why Jean Seberg and Jane Fonda were attracted to their cause, in addition to what I've already said, amounts to this. The Panthers, the male and female members, wore black leather and sometimes openly carried weapons. They were incredibly charismatic and sexy, they at least gestured towards giving women equal power to men. They terrified the white establishment, but they had loads of appeal in the communities in which they represented a powerful alternative to the racist white establishment. As such, they were naturally and sometimes naively embraced by celebrities with an interest in civil rights and or a fealty to the counterculture. In 1969, J. Edgar Hoover declared the Panthers to be, quote, the greatest threat to the internal security of the country, and he put the full weight of his office behind trying to take the Panthers down. Gene Seberg and Jane Fonda's involvement with the Panthers and other non-white radicals helped to put both actresses on the radar of the FBI. Today, we will begin by talking about how Jean's activism and her relationships with two black men led to the FBI monitoring her as a threat to national security. Then, we'll shift gears to join Jane Fonda in early 1970 as she explores a number of activist avenues, gets her first Oscar nomination, films the movie Clute, and discovers that she's also being monitored by the FBI. Join us, won't you? for part six of Jean and Jane. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious, but with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. A couple of notes before we get into this chapter on Jean Seberg. By the end of this episode, we'll have pretty much reached the end of the road of Seberg's Hollywood career. 
Her post-Paint Your Wagon filmography includes 12 feature films, most of them made in Europe, one TV movie, and two experimental quasi-documentaries directed by Philippe Gorel. Many of these films are unavailable currently, or at least I was not able to track them down in physical places or online. As such, the remaining Gene Seberg films that we discuss will be a combination of films that I've seen and films I've only read about. I'll identify which is which when necessary. One other thing to note, I'm usually only interested in my subject's sex lives to the extent that their relationships help us to understand something about what their professional lives were like. Often, in Hollywood, a star's choice of mate or other details about their personal lives would become part of their star persona, and would play into the level of opportunity and power they were able to leverage in their careers. In the case of Jean Seberg, the idea that she had sexual affairs with one or more black radicals helped to destroy her film career and had a huge impact on the deterioration of her personal life and mental health. It wasn't the relationships themselves that did this. It was the public perception of those relationships, as distributed by the media, with the helping hand of the FBI. The content of the relationships themselves has been disputed. We know that Jean did welcome two men into her life in some capacity— one a self-styled heir to Malcolm X, and the other a key member of the Black Panthers. Nearly 50 years after the fact, it's very difficult to say with any certainty who did what with whom or felt what for whom. One of Jean's biographers, Gary McGee, who seems to have had more direct cooperation from Seberg's family, takes great care to avoid categorizing Jean's relationships with these men as sexual. Another biographer, David Richards, details two romances between Jean and Black activists, quoting the observations of sources such as Jean's third husband and the wife of one of the men in question. The story that follows here on the podcast combines the version of events put forward in both biographies, as well as other sources, which will, as always, be listed in the show notes for this episode. This version of events that I've compiled is what seems most credible to me, although I've tried to note the cases where there are versions of the story that diverge significantly. And now, on with our story. In October 1968, on a flight from San Francisco to Los Angeles, a man named Hakeem Jamal sat down next to Jean Seberg and started chatting her up about black power. Though he volunteered his life story to Jean, Jamal wasn't exactly friendly to her. In fact, he was open about his general disdain for and distrust of white people. Jean was intrigued enough to try to convince him that she was not his enemy. Born Alan Eugene Donaldson, he had adopted the name Hakeem Jamal after marrying a relative of Malcolm X, Dorothy Durham, and subsequently converting to Islam and remaking himself within the Black Power movement. After Malcolm X was killed in 1965, Hakeem Jamal began presenting himself as a direct cousin of Brother Malcolm and using the slain Black Power leader's name to promote his own activist efforts which included the Malcolm X Foundation, a nonprofit which aimed to build a Malcolm X museum, and a Montessori school that Jamal started in Compton for preschool-aged kids. A former heroin addict, Hakeem claimed that Malcolm himself had taken the needle out of his arm and cleaned him up, and he pledged that his school would only be open to kids whose parents stayed off hard drugs. He preached that drugs were one of the ways the white man oppressed the black man. Hakeem carried guns and threats of violence were part of his rhetoric, but to a great extent he was playing a character in order to add urgency to his cause and to align himself further with Malcolm X so that his work would be taken seriously. The FBI did not see the nuance to this performance, and, declaring him armed and dangerous, they watched Hakeem Jamal carefully. 
They were watching in the fall of 1968, when, after that meet-cute on the airplane, Seberg began devoting much time to the Hakim Jamal cause. In late October, there was a fire at the Malcolm X Foundation headquarters. Jean believed Hakim was not safe in Compton, so she called Sammy Davis Jr., who was the house act at Harrah's in Tahoe at the time, and Sammy agreed to send his private jet to pick Jean and Hakim up and take them to Tahoe. This trip would have two purposes, to protect Jamal and to give them a chance to ask Sammy Davis for a financial donation to the Malcolm X Foundation. In one account of this trip to Tahoe, Hakeem's wife Dorothy and six children were on the jet and present for the whole weekend. In another version of the story, the one related by Dorothy Jamal, the family was not invited. But while they were there, Jamal called Dorothy and passed the phone to Jean, who assured Dorothy that her husband was now safe. Dorothy had to stifle a laugh. When Jamal had told Jean about the fire, he had embellished the incident into an assassination attempt. He told her that people wanted to kill him, just as they had killed his cousin Malcolm. And, as Jamal's wife Dorothy put it, Jean had fallen for it. Dorothy had seen her husband work his magic on movie stars before. She knew he loved celebrity. He had served as the liaison when various famous people, including Marlon Brando, had wanted to meet Black Panthers. Hakeem was a good enough talker to make white girls like Jean Seberg believe that they were different from the white enemy he railed against. And when girls like this felt special, they could be useful. So Dorothy wasn't worried about the time her husband was spending with Jean. At least, not at first. Dorothy believed that the relationship between her husband and Jean Seberg became sexual during or after the trip to Tahoe. Dennis Berry, who would become Jean's third and final husband, believed that Hakeem Jamal was the great, most passionate love of Jean's life. After the Tahoe trip, Jean started trying to ingratiate herself with Hakeem's wife, Dorothy. Jean opened up her house to the whole Jamal family. She confided in Dorothy about her affair with Clint Eastwood, bought her some jewelry, and hired a limousine to take Jean, Dorothy, and Dorothy's kids to Disneyland. When Jean went to Iowa for Thanksgiving, she invited the entire Jamal family to stay at her Beverly Hills house in her absence. Whether or not Jean, who was separated from Roman Gary but not yet divorced from him, intended to steal Dorothy's husband and commit to him romantically, Jean was committed to the causes he introduced her to. And to take her involvement to the next level, she asked him to introduce her to members of the Black Panthers. In November 1968, after a benefit hosted by Friends of the Black Panthers, an organization run by Donald Sutherland's wife, Shirley Douglas, Jamal asked Panther co-founder Bobby Seale if he would like to meet Jean Seberg. Seale reportedly said, quote, We took Marlon Brando for $10,000. We can take Seberg for $20,000. That night, Jamal drove Seale and Raymond Masai Hewitt, the Panthers' Minister of Education, to Jean's house in Beverly Hills. Vanessa Redgrave was staying with Jean at the time, and the Black radicals sat late into the night, drinking with the white actresses and answering their questions about the movement. Seal was impressed by Jean's apparently earnest interest in learning and helping. This would be the first and last time that Jean would encounter Bobby Seal, but she would begin regularly donating money and time to his organization. While Jean was in Iowa for Thanksgiving, she gave an interview to a French journalist acknowledging that she had opened her home to Hakim. He was in danger, she said, and Jean planned to stand by him, no matter what. If he is killed, or his wife, or one of his children, Jean vowed, I will understand the anger of the blacks, and I will participate in violence myself. The French journalist ran the story under the headline, Jean Seberg menaced. In the United States, she harbored a black and his family, the cousin of the assassinated extremist leader Malcolm X. 
At Christmas time, Jean flew to Paris to spend the holiday with her son and her estranged husband. In late January 1969, Hakim Jamal followed her there. He gave a lecture at a university in Paris, which Jean attended, sitting on the edge of her seat as he explained to the audience why he advocated violence against whites. The FBI noticed that Seberg met Jamal at Orly Airport, and a plan was drawn up to publicize their connection through gossip columns. But J. Edgar Hoover decided to hold off for the moment. Within a couple of weeks, Hakim moved on to London, where he stayed with Vanessa Redgrave. Jean went back to the States to make the biggest blockbuster of her career and her last significant Hollywood movie. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Airport had a cast of thousands, including Jean, Burt Lancaster, Dean Martin, Maureen Stapleton, Helen Hayes, Jacqueline Bissett, and many more. It helped to set the template for the dumb, massive ensemble cast disaster movie that would become as much a force at the box office in the 1970s as the cool, smart blockbusters made by people like Francis Ford Coppola and William Friedkin. Airport would become a huge hit, and Jean commanded a supersized salary for her time, even though she was only cast because she still owed the studio a film on her contract. But it wasn't a satisfying experience for her. She complained to her old acting teacher, Peyton Price, that a movie like this didn't demand any individuality from her. They could have cast anyone to stand around in a mini skirt, swooning over ridiculous situations. She was also increasingly paranoid during the shooting. She believed she was being followed, and she would often call producer Ross Hunter in the middle of the night and beg him to let her stay at his house. Making Airport, a movie that Jean thought she could have made in her sleep, and for which she had been paid more than she had ever made before or would make again, made Hollywood movie-making seem all the more insignificant compared to causes like Jamal's. Jean deposited $5,000 of her airport earnings into an account with Jamal's name on it. She bought his Montessori school a school bus, and in April 1969, she hosted a star-studded fundraiser at her house for the school. The guests included Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward, Vanessa Redgrave, Lee Marvin, and Jane Fonda. Jane, who had not yet embarked on her own activist mission, which we'll get into in the second half of this episode, by one account, donated $1,000 to the Montessori school. But Dorothy Jamal was not impressed by the turnout. She said the fundraiser only netted about $2,000 total. And this didn't seem like enough to make Jean Seberg's presence in her life worthwhile. And Jean seemed to be becoming disillusioned with the Jamals, too, as she gravitated more to the Black Panthers, the L.A. chapter of which was now run by Masai Hewitt. Jean's Beverly Hills house became a meeting place for the local Panthers, a place where they could casually have a meal or a drink without having to watch their backs. Sometimes they asked Jean for small amounts of money. According to Dennis Berry, there were times when Jean helped them get guns. But this would have been extremely risky and seems somewhat unlikely given that Jean went to some lengths to conceal her significant contributions to the Panthers by using code names and go-betweens, like Masai Hewitt and his girlfriend, Elaine Brown, who became Jean's friend and confidant. At first, Brown and Hewitt would visit Jean together. Then Brown started letting Masai go to Jean's house on his own. In her memoir, 
Brown's wording implies that the relationship between Masai and Jean was sexual, if short-lived. I never resented what Masai felt for her, Brown wrote. It was understandable. Jean Seberg was truly beautiful. Brown was less cynical than Dorothy Jamal about the involvement of white celebrities in the Black Power movement. Don and Shirley Sutherland, John Voight, Jane Fonda, and producer Bert Schneider were just some of the rich Hollywood folks who, Brown wrote, had begun lending us their homes for fundraising soirees that produced thousands of dollars in hard cash. They subscribed to and helped obtain other subscriptions for our newspaper. They sent monthly checks for our breakfast program and paid our incessant bails. As most black artists, along with other black professionals, steered around and away from us, we clutched Hollywood and did not analyze it. We thanked our stars. Brown recognized that there were opportunists, white and black, in her midst. As she saw it, Jean was not one of them. Jean was genuinely interested and genuinely wanted to help, and she put her money where her mouth was. She began regularly giving money to the Panthers in small increments, under deep cover. She'd leave a message for Masai or Elaine, calling herself Aretha, as in Aretha Franklin, a pseudonym that all three thought was funny, and which later morphed into Arisa. Arisa was the pseudonym for Jean that most shows up in her FBI files. After Aretha or Arisa left a message... Then an unmarked envelope of cash would show up at Hewitt and Brown's house. This subterfuge was not because Jean was embarrassed to be a supporter of the Panthers. According to Elaine Brown, it was merely practical. Jean felt if she was known as a major contributor to the party, she would not get work in Hollywood and would not, in turn, have the resources to continue. Brown wrote, Unfortunately, Exactly what Jean had tried to avoid would come to pass. In May 1969, a local newspaper in Compton ran a blind item intimating that a local leader was having an affair with a white woman, an action that was offensive for a number of reasons, including that one of the ideals of the Black Power movement was about raising children responsibly in non-broken homes. Dorothy Jamal hired a private detective to prove that her husband's visits to Jean's house were not innocent. She called Jean and told her to leave Hakeem alone. Then Dorothy called Jean's agent and Jean's father. One night, Dorothy drove over to Jean's house expecting to barge in on her husband in bed with the movie star. She saw his car parked down the street. Dorothy knocked on the door, and according to Dorothy, Masai Hewitt answered, wearing boxer shorts and holding a gun. Dorothy recalled that Jean, who was wearing a negligee, screamed, It's the mad lady! She's coming to get me! Dorothy believed that while she was dealing with Seberg and Hewitt, her husband snuck out the back door and raced home. The following month, Jean left Los Angeles for Rome, and then Morocco, where she started working on a movie called Dead of Summer. It seems that whatever her personal relationships with Jamal and Hewitt were, they tapered off after her departure. In a conversation that was monitored by the FBI, she told a member of the Panthers that Jamal had, in a fit of desperation, proposed marriage to her, and Jean had, quote, turned him off and tuned him out completely. But the damage had been done. By 1970, Hakeem and Dorothy Jamal would have split up, and both the Malcolm X Foundation and the Montessori School would have shuddered for want of money. The FBI, having witnessed some kind of relationship between both Jean and Jamal, and Jean and Hewitt through their surveillance of the men and their political activity, decided to promote Jean to a key target of their investigation. 
In June 1969, FBI agent G.C. Moore recommended, quote, an active, discreet investigation be instituted on American actress Jean Seberg, who is providing funds and assistance to black extremists, including leaders in the Black Panthers Party. Shortly thereafter, the FBI gave Jean an INS classification of F3 stop, which meant that her movements in and out of the United States would be monitored. By now, Jean, rightfully paranoid due to Dorothy's harassment and the real surveillance she was under, had been pushed to the brink of madness. What happened next would push her over the edge. At a party Mike Nichols had thrown for Michelangelo Antonioni, Jane Fonda met Fred Gardner, a Marxist writer who had worked on the script for Zabriskie Point. Gardner had also helped to create a wave of GI coffee houses, places near bases, where enlisted men could meet to say and do things they couldn't do in the eyes of the military, like vocally state their opposition to the war and read anti-war literature. Gardner explained to Jane that there was a thriving movement of GIs who opposed the war, and they needed the support, encouragement, and protection of civilians. Jane asked him if he would send her his writing on the subject, and he did, assuming she was a flighty movie star who he'd never hear from again. Instead, Jane showed up at his house, full of questions. Gardner was married to a woman who was active in both the anti-war and feminist movements, but they were having problems. Jane, who was not used to having men around who were not interested in her sexually, pursued Gardner. His marriage did not survive. Gardner told Jane that she was coming to activism too late. The New Left movement, which Gardner had been a key part of, was falling apart He warned her that activism was a thankless job, that she shouldn't do it because she was hoping for good publicity. It would be all hard work, and much of it wouldn't have immediate, if any, gratification. Jane committed herself to learning, and with Gardner, shortly after she received her first Oscar nomination for They Shoot Horses, Don't They?, she began touring GI coffee houses, sitting with the soldiers, and hearing them talk about their issues. Then she tried to get Henry Fonda on her side. By this time, Jane had stopped wearing the chic French designer clothes she had bought while with Vadim. She had stopped wearing bras. Most of the time, she could be found in a thin t-shirt and workaday denim. She would bring her activist friends over to Henry's Bel Air manse and make her National Monument father sit and listen while her friends detailed the atrocities Americans were committing in Vietnam. Henry Fonda didn't believe it. He refused to believe that Americans were capable of war crimes. It wasn't until Donald Duncan, a former Green Beret-turned-activist, came to the House with stories of the indiscriminate murder and rape of civilians— and showed Fonda footage of American soldiers burning villages, that Henry acknowledged there was a problem. But he wasn't sure what he could do. Later, he'd complained to friends that Jane's activism was preventing Henry from getting work, because the Hollywood brass assumed he agreed with her. In fact, 65-year-old Henry Fonda filmed three movies in 1970. In March, Jane and a French female friend, Elizabeth Veillon, embarked on a road trip. They planned to drive all over the country, visiting GI coffee houses and speaking at colleges and rallies. Jane's daughter, Vanessa, now a year and a half, would stay with Vadim. Before she left, Henry Fonda suggested to Jane that she was doing exactly what her mother had done to her abandoning her daughter. Jane cried like she hadn't been able to cry when she lost her own mother. But she had to go. Leaving her 18-month-old daughter to join the anti-war movement 
would ultimately impact Jane's relationship with Vanessa severely. As Jane once put it, she'll be angry about it until I die. In general, in the early 1970s, Jane was not able to stop and think about the consequences of what she was doing before she did it. She just felt so much urgency. After all, every second that passed meant that more lives were lost in Vietnam. She tried to listen more than she talked, but when invited to speak, sometimes her mouth would move faster than her brain. At one early event, for instance, she claimed that the Viet Cong were, quote, driven by the same spirit that drove Washington and Jefferson. She would lament her impulsiveness at length later. When I look back over that period, I realize I was not ready for so much antagonistic public exposure, she wrote. Jane was already feeling regrets in 1971 when she appeared on The Dick Cavett Show. Well, I learned that... um that I was on the defensive because, you know, I I changed very fast. I went through a very fast evolution in my life. I, you know, I spent a lot of time on an ivory tower, kind of up there in Beverly Hills, looking through the smog, not being able to see through the smog, down to find out what was happening in the world. And, uh, you know, when you're you're a movie actress or or an entertainer, when you're famous, uh, and you take a, a, a position, people are always sort of ready to back you in the corner, uh, and it was easy to do, uh, because I, I didn't have the kind of structure behind me to, to protect me. And so I was very much on the defensive, you know, uh, and, and you don't reach people that way. You know, I, I would get angry that people didn't understand what I had been finding out, and, uh, and it, it, you know, it turned a lot of people off. People thought that I was some sort of crazy dame. As she added much later, quote, I made it easy for the media and others to choose a dubious, if not downright hostile, lens through which to view me. There I was, up on my soapbox, pronouncing myself a revolutionary woman, while Barbarella had just played in a theater around the corner. Jane wasn't a hypocrite. As Vadim had observed, her move from Barbarella to baby activist had been a process of taking off a mask and finding a truer self underneath, and not the other way around. As always, when she had found what she believed was her correct path, she hit the ground running with an intensity that would send anyone else's head spinning. Maybe it was the quickness of the change that caused whiplash, but the content of the change was startling too, especially when seen for the ways in which it defied gender roles. When you've established a public image as the sexually amenable daughter of an all-American man, and then you abruptly start complicating that image by refusing to style yourself for the male gaze and questioning the morality of the American establishment and a war in which thousands were currently fighting, some people were going to prefer the old Jane Fonda. What surprised Jane Fonda was how many people questioned her motives and how vehemently they did it. What's worth noting is how radically she had changed her own personal life, and in how short of a time. By her own admission, three months earlier, she had been wearing miniskirts and false eyelashes. Now, as she put it, I wouldn't dress for men anymore. I would dress so that women weren't uncomfortable around me. She had also left a man who she had been previously so afraid to lose that she had submitted to threesomes that she didn't want to have, believing that was the only way to keep him. She had essentially gone from building a life around what was expected of her as a beautiful woman to building a life around what she felt was important in the moment. And that, in 1970, was as politically radical as anything. For two months, Jane and Elizabeth traveled in a nondescript station wagon, packed with a cooler in which Jane kept the only foods that she was eating at the time. Boiled eggs, raw corn, and spinach. They stayed in cheap motels. No one recognized Jane because, as she put it, I didn't look the way I was supposed to anymore. And yet, it was still technically her job to be a movie star. 
she had to come back to Los Angeles for the Oscars. Well, she didn't have to do anything. But after she was nominated for They Shoot Horses, Don't They?, she chose to interrupt her road trip, fly to L.A., and suit up in the high-glamour drag of a Chanel dress to attend the ceremony. On the red carpet, which she walked with Vadim, on the way into the theater, she raised a fist in the air, Black Panther style. At Elizabeth Taylor's Oscars after party, Jane solicited donations for the Panthers, which she delivered later that night at a Panther rally. Two days later, Jane was off on the road again, this time to Denver, where she'd make her debut as a public anti-war protester at a two-day fast organized by a group called Mobilization to End the War. Jane didn't know it at the time, but it was this event, the first anti-war event Jane participated in that was designed to be noticed by the national media, that inspired the FBI to start paying attention to her. The FBI is not supposed to surveil an American without evidence that they've committed a crime. In Jane Fonda's case, they decided that the crime that she was guilty of was sedition, which had been used to indict some Vietnam protesters since the late 1960s. The FBI did not have proof that Jane was guilty of sedition, which entails participating in a conspiracy to overthrow the government or to prevent the enforcement of its laws. Nor did they have evidence that she had violated the 1917 Espionage Act, which they hoped they could use to bring down opponents of the war like Jane. But the hope was that by watching her, they'd find evidence to make an indictment stick. As she and Elizabeth resumed their road trip, Jane began to realize that they were always being followed. She drove extra carefully, and yet they were frequently stopped by traffic cops. When they would visit army bases, as soon as the officials recognized Jane, they were usually arrested for trespassing, then fingerprinted and photographed and escorted outside to the waiting TV cameras, to which Jane was happy to make statements. Jane had plenty to say after April 30th, 1970, when it was revealed that instead of working to end the war as he had promised, President Richard Nixon had expanded the war to Cambodia via ground invasion. Jane had heard stories from her Green Beret friend that the U.S. had actually been secretly bombing Cambodia for a while. Whether or not anyone else was surprised, Nixon's announcement became a flashpoint for reaction against the war. Even Congress reacted. In the days and months to follow, each branch of Congress would vote to rescind their authorization of military action in Vietnam. A few days after the announcement of the Cambodia invasion, Jane was booked to speak at the University of New Mexico at Albuquerque. It would be her first formal speech about Vietnam. She was nervous and prepared her comments in advance, taking care to make sure her facts were correct, but delivering them with passion. And then, when she was finished, Beat Generation poet Gregory Corso rushed the stage and demanded to know why Jane hadn't said a word about the unarmed students that had just been murdered by National Guardsmen at Kent State University while they were protesting the war. Jane hadn't heard about it. It had happened that morning, and she had been so focused on preparing for her speech that she hadn't turned on the news. Jane was shocked and felt foolish. She immediately joined the students in Albuquerque on a march to the president of the university's home, where they demanded that they be allowed to strike without having to confront the National Guard. From then on, Jane, who had been Hollywood royalty for all of her 32 years on the planet— efforted to align herself with student protesters, who Nixon had started calling bums. In a meeting with his closest aides, Nixon dictated the rhetoric to be used to defame anti-war protesters. He specifically recommended that the word treason be used to describe protests and dissent. Five days after Kent State, Jane was a featured speaker at a rally at the National Mall in D.C., where she ran up on stage, 
notably brawless, and put her fist in the air and cried out, Greetings, fellow bums. After that, she returned to the road, touring coffee houses and universities with renewed confidence. The more stories she heard from vets at coffee houses regarding violations of their civil liberties like free speech, including regulations on the type of mail they were allowed to receive and an outright ban on anti-war publications, and the intimidation and harassment they feared from their higher-ups should they speak out or even ask too many questions, the more Jane felt determined to speak for these G.I.s herself. That summer, the road trip came to a close. Jane needed money. She hadn't made any all year, and she had spent much on her activism. At one point, she reportedly loaned a credit card to some Black Panthers so they could rent a car. And then her press agent got a call with the news that they had lost both the credit card and the car. It was time to go back to the lucrative work of being a movie star. And so Jane accepted an offer to star in Clute, a surveillance thriller about a detective, played by Donald Sutherland, and a thoroughly modern call girl, played by Jane. Rather than submit to a highly glamorized or sexualized makeover, Jane would play Brie in the dressed-down look that she was living in off-camera, including her real-life haircut, the mullet shag she had been wearing since post They Shoot Horses, which she told one reporter fulfilled her, quote, deep-rooted psychological need to be a boy. For Jane, this was part of the allure of the role, to play a woman who made a living exploiting male desire without letting her image be exploited for the male gaze. But Jane was determined that Clute not be a pure feminist fantasy, and so she spent time with real sex workers in their homes and workplaces. Director Alan Picula also sent Jane to the New York City morgue so she could look at post-mortem photos of women in that line of work who had been beaten and murdered by Johns and pimps. She became nervous when she tagged along with one working girl on a job, and the date failed to try to get Jane to join in the act. Maybe she wasn't sexy enough for this role. Even the pimps know I'm not call girl material, she complained to Pecula. Maybe Faye Dunaway should play Brie. Both the morgue photo scene and the rejection scene would be recreated in the movie, although in the case of the latter, Jane's Brie is completely passed over in the context of her day job as a quote-unquote straight model. She responds to having been made to feel invisible by immediately going out and finding a pay-for-play date so that she can take back control. While shooting Clute in New York City, Jane continued to use her off hours to make speeches, fundraise, and make phone calls to help the veterans' cause. On the movie set, she got a rude awakening as to the negative consequences of her activism. Most of the people who worked on film crews then were older men who tended to be politically conservative, or at the very least, didn't believe in rocking the boat. By the summer of 1970, Jane had spent a full six months publicly aligning herself with the opposition to the war and to President Nixon. And in what was probably not her most politic move, she invited some Black Panther friends to visit her on set. One day, she showed up on set and saw that a giant American flag had been displayed prominently as a silent protest. When Jane saw the flag, she recognized it as a sign that the crew was mobilizing against her, and she wanted to hide. But she knew that her character, Bree, wouldn't have let something like this bother her. Bree would have said, fuck it. And Bree, Jane believed, was a great actress. The core of her job was to give the performance the client paid for. So Jane would act, too. She strode onto set, thinking, fuck it. In fact, Bree says this several times throughout Clute, but only in the context of a conversation with a new John, which is taped without her knowledge and played repeatedly through the course of the narrative. I will do anything you ask. You should never be ashamed of things like that. I mean, you mustn't be. You know, there's nothing wrong. Nothing, nothing is wrong. 
think the only way that any of us can ever be happy is to is to let it all hang out, you know, do it all and fuck it. One of the most famous scenes in Clute is the initial date that follows Bree's modeling audition. She makes a phone call to find what she calls a quick 50, and then negotiates with the man in the hotel room. And then, in the middle of the act, while performing an orgasm under him, she glances at her watch. Later, she describes why she's drawn to this job, to her shrink. For an hour, I'm the best actress in the world and the best fuck in the world. And why'd you say you're the best actress in the world at that time? Oh, because it's an act. That's what's nice about it. You don't have to feel anything. You don't have to care about anything. You don't have to like anybody. You just, uh, you just lead them by the ring in their nose and the direction that they think they want to go in. And you get a lot of money out of them in as short a period of time as possible. And, uh, and you control it and you call the shots. And I always feel just great afterwards. And you enjoyed it? No. Why not? You said there's nothing wrong with it. Why not, you said? Well, there's a difference. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Uh, morally, I didn't enjoy it physically. I, I came to enjoy it because it made me feel good. It made me feel like I wasn't alone. It made me feel... Uh, that I had some control over myself, that I had some control over my life, that I, uh, that I could determine things for myself. This kind of stuff in Clute is more directly radical than anything Jane had done yet, off-screen or on, in terms of defying the male gaze that drove cinema and the patriarchy that had for so long defined women's lives. Because she's showing the stagecraft and performance behind convincing men that you exist to please them. What cutting her hair and stripping away her Barbarella persona had symbolized? Now she was actually saying out loud. A later scene, in which she speaks to her psychiatrist about having sex with the detective John Clute, was improvised, and it included Jane's real feelings about intimacy and about Donald Sutherland, with whom she was having an affair. Jane described the real-life affair as intense, which is sort of like the Pope describing someone else as a hardcore Catholic. Clute performs an incredible bit of reverse engineering, demonstrating the psychology of a prostitute by showing her emotional worlds turned upside down when she experiences real intimacy, and making real what it felt like to live in a moment of total crisis by normalizing an outlaw's trepidatious toe dip into the straight world. This plotline domesticates the sex worker's experience, making it relatable to any woman. While making this movie in part about surveillance and paranoia, Jane felt she was being watched, but what she didn't know yet was that the FBI had begun formally surveilling her that spring compiling reports on her appearances at G.I. coffeehouses and the like. In an FBI document dated May 1970, the stated purpose of the surveillance was to, quote, determine the extent of her affiliation with the Black Panther Party. This surveillance was directed by Richard Wallace Held, a second-generation FBI man who was one of the lead agents in charge of Pro efforts against the Panthers in Los Angeles. As we'll see in our next episode, Held took special interest in Gene Seberg, too. Jane got confirmation of the FBI's interest in her three months later. Jane had been living during the shoot at her father Henry's Manhattan Brownstone, there she entertained her friends, including the Black Panthers. One day in August 1970, when both Jane and Henry were home, FBI agents came to the Brownstone to question Jane as to her knowledge of the whereabouts of Angela Davis, the Black Panther academic and activist who was on the run after a fatal shooting and hostage incident during the trial of a Panther in Marin County. 
the guns used in the takeover of the courtroom, had been registered to Davis, though she wasn't even in the courtroom at the time. Jane honestly didn't know where Davis was, and she told the FBI agents this. But after they left, Henry Fonda was extremely upset. He told his daughter that she needed to move out of his house. She ended up renting her own apartment, and a few weeks later, she offered her new place up as the site for a press conference held by Panther Huey Newton. Jane served drinks to the reporters and said nothing. Unlike Jean Seberg, whose tendency was to respond to the FBI's felt presence in her life by retreating into paranoid seclusion, Jane spoke openly about it, although she sometimes had trouble articulating how she saw her new identity. She was at once defiant and also apparently afraid to totally alienate the movie world and movie audiences. Here she is in a BBC television interview given while she had her clute haircut. Has the FBI shown any interest in your activities, personally? Yes, of course. Yeah, the FBI has been to see my husband and my brother and my father. And, um, you know, that's you, now, you to be say, You say this, this, this uh, activity, these activities are yours. You don't think that they um, endanger your professional career. And yet, let's put it like this. If it came to a decision between your career and your civil rights work, which would come first? I know that's a very hard question because it would depend on the circumstances. But let's put it like this. If there was a question of doing something you felt you should do, which might mean going to jail, and going to jail (laughs) might mean that you wouldn't do the picture which you're assigned to do, would you go to jail? I'm not doing anything for which I can... uh, uh actually go to jail for. Today in America, mm. anyone who is doing anything um, involving root changes in this country can go to jail. Right. And, and so I am, I cannot stop doing what I'm doing. I am, I am, I am involved in things because I, because I know that without that involvement on the part of everyone, uh, there will be no world anymore. Um, Let me put it like this. Nowhere. And so, so, um, to be safe today in America, it means you have to be Bob Hope, if you're an actor, or that you have to do, or or, or nothing at all. And um, I I don't think that that's a viable way of living. I I don't think that anyone can live that way today when things are so crucial. Um, So it may mean that I go to jail. I will certainly be in good company if that happens. What you're doing is to to attack certain inegalities, certain abuses in society. But shouldn't you really be attacking the root cause, that is, attacking society itself, the system? Well, if changing the system from the ground up is revolutionary, uh, then I'm revolutionary. Although I don't, I'm not, in fact, revolutionary, because uh, I think a revolutionary is someone who lives the revolution 24 hours a day. Uh, I am still a movie actress. I, uh, I, I still lead a certain kind of life. I am a radical, but I'm not a revolutionary, although I am for the revolution. After completing her last shot on Clute, Jane and Donald Sutherland got in a cab and went straight to the Greenwich Village headquarters of Vietnam Veterans Against the War. This organization was taking the lead in publicizing atrocities committed by Americans in Vietnam. They were about to launch their own investigation, with the intention of tracing events like the My Lai Massacre straight to official military policy. They asked Jane if she would help with this effort, which they were calling the Winter Soldier Investigation. She agreed, and she began appearing at events as a speaker on behalf of Vietnam veterans against the war. At one event that she and Sutherland spoke at, on Labor Day, Jane bashed the Nixon administration as, quote, a beehive of cold-blooded killers. She only found out later that the bodyguard the veterans organization had provided her at such events was actually an informant for the FBI. To some audiences, there was a thrill in watching Jane Fonda, so recently an icon of good American breeding and cheerful blonde sexual availability, 
turn so aggressively against the establishment. The organizers of some events even billed her as Barbarella. It was easy to dismiss her as just an actress playing a role. And then in November, in a setup orchestrated by the FBI, Jane got off a flight from Vancouver and was arrested at customs at the airport in Cleveland on a drug trafficking charge. The drugs on her person included dexedrine and Valium, which were legal and prescribed, and 105 bottles of vitamins, such as B and D, which Jane used as an effort to counteract the health effects of her bulimia. Jane was kept handcuffed in a jail cell for 10 hours. Jane, who had her period at the time, kicked an officer when he wouldn't let her use the restroom. While she was being held, customs agents secretly copied the contents of a notebook in which she kept all of her addresses and phone numbers. This was, to any rational person, an obviously overblown arrest. As Jane herself put it, I was never hassled until I started speaking out against the war. This was a political arrest. The charges were dropped, but it had an impact. Her father stopped talking to her for a while, and many of her Hollywood connections distanced themselves from her. As, to be fair, Jane had already done to them. Remember the first episode of this series, when I mentioned that YouTube video that compared Jane as Barbarella to Jane's mugshot and said the former was what we wanted and the latter was what we got? By the time of her drug arrest, Jane's transformation from bombshell persona to radical persona was complete. And the feeling of betrayal in the wake of that transformation was real. By moving from sex comedies to serious roles about women who desired something other than a happy coupling, and at the same time cutting her hair, deglamorizing her whole persona, and openly campaigning for unfun causes, Jane had done much to destroy the star persona that had been easy to consume for much of the 60s. Her new look, and what she did with it, ripped apart the fantasy of her highly constructed sexual image. And people who had bought into that fantasy felt cheated. Jane knew what she was doing hadn't made her more popular in Hollywood. Instead of trying to make nice, she doubled down on what she believed in. In 1971, she moved to Detroit to concentrate full-time on the Winter Soldier investigation. Jane's job, in addition to raising money to make a documentary about the Winter Soldier project, was to find housing for the soldiers who were traveling to town to tell the investigators their stories. Stories about the racist agenda of the war, the ways in which soldiers were encouraged to torture the Vietnamese and to rape the women. Jane wasn't sure she'd ever return to Hollywood. She didn't want to unless she could figure out a way to use the power of movies to do something meaningful. And there was much speculation that Hollywood no longer wanted her. But then Clute was released, and Jane's performance in it was something Hollywood couldn't ignore. As we will see next week. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our editor is Sam Dingman, and our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find our entire archive, as well as show notes, which include information about the sources we use in our research, and also the music that plays behind the episode. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter, at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. 
And if you haven't already, now would be a great time to subscribe to the show on iTunes and rate and review us there. You can also find us virtually anywhere else that podcasts can be subscribed to. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night.